welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa. Joining us in our third chair today is Jack. Hello, Jack. How are you? Hello. So excited to have you back on. I'm excited to be back on. I was thinking about this earlier. I feel like a radio DJ. This is Noir FM 98.3. Looking at films of the 80s, 90s, and now. We did the 80s. We did the 90s. And now we're just now. I think it's funny that you say now when at least one of these films is almost 20 years old. Well, but that's exactly the point. Like, 80s, what a decade. The 90s, also cool. This is also music, technically. How do we feel about the aughts as a decade? <laughs> oh, since most of our films fall into the aughts. I mean, 2007 is one of the best movie years ever, so. Name all of the movies. Name, <laughs> okay, what, what are the movies that come to mind from 2007? Zodiac, There Will Be Blood, Old Country for Old Men. That was Avatar too, wasn't it? Uh, Michael Clayton. Which, no, Avatar is two thousand nine. I was in college. Yeah, I think Atone. I think an Atonement is two thousand seven. Enchanted came out that year too, as did Stardust. Neither one of those were nominated for Best Picture. And Ratatouille. Enchanted is a Jack Monkey. Oh, you've never seen it. Well, oh, you're gonna you better love hurry it. up. I can already. I already know. Super bad came out that year. Death Proof. Superbad was the first movie I saw at college. Hot Fuzz. Juno. Juno. Saw that was nominated. Saw that. Uh, Michael Clayton was nominated that year. I Am yep. Legend. So this one then won an Oscar. Yep. Okay, so that's four out of five. What was the other one that was nominated that year? See, they all run together. Ghost Rider. That's the uh, Marvel Polanski. Marvel MCU. Oh, no. Ghost Rider. I thought you said Ghostwriter Atonement. Yeah. Okay. Knocked up. There's a big difference between Ghostwriter and Ghostwriter. Yeah, those are very different, yeah. very different films. Okay. So now that we've contextualized. <laughs> now let's do a whole different yeah. list of films. All right. So, well, I haven't even told you the films we're talking about today. I haven't even gotten to the end of the intro yet. <laughs> so we are to close out Noir Vember looking at three movies from the 21st century that are allegedly, according to at least somebody, noir. I cannot look at Tessa in the face talking about Nicholas Reffin. <laughs> it just like not break. The director who directed The Neon Demon also made a noir movie with Ryan Gosling called Drive, and we're going to talk about it today. And then after that, we're going to talk about a Sydney Lumet I don't know. Maybe a classic. I don't know. Does it stack up to 12 Angry Men? We'll talk about it. It does have Philip Seymour Hoffman before the devil knows you're dead. And finally, Ryan Johnson's first film, Brick. Woo! <laughs> I don't know what you wanted hold, me to say there. For, hold, pause for reaction. Pause for laughter. Pause oh, for it applause. It wasn't really laughter. Tessa and I have had this discussion Three times already. Jack, you haven't heard the latest one yet that we had with Matt, but we've been talking all month about 
what is noir in the context of the time period of the week? You know, so we spent the first week talking about first wave or just noir. And then we spent the other three weeks talking about different phases of neo-noir. And so when I was trying to figure this one out this week, I very helpfully found BFI's sight and sound list of best 21st century noir. And even more helpfully, they did my job for me. For each of the films, they uh, described how the film had some sort of motif that is noir. But I guess I should ask you first, Jack. So everybody has unanimously said so far that noir is a vibe. Would you care to contradict that? No. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean to you? Well, I generally like vibey movies, and I think probably all three, of, well, especially one of the movies we're discussing today is extremely vibey. I think if you're going to, go with the ones that we're discussing today. I feel like these are the ones of the ones that have been discussed that have are more aware of the previous ones and are more reflect like trying to tweak the genre more. Like they're aware and so they are playing with the tropes but also trying to make their own voice. So noir goes postmodern in the twenty first century. Yeah, that was the word I was looking for. Like, I would say in a lot of the ones on that list, narr- like narrators are not as big of a point, but they're still noir films. Short answer to a short question now, and we'll get more into it in a later segment. The remixing or the postmodern take on noir that we have in the last two decades, is that generally, in your mind, Jack, a good thing? I think so. I mean, I enjoy when there are like movies that go back to the original flavor, but it's also good to kind of tweak it to allow new kinds of stories to be told. And of like, there's some things in this movie that I had never seen before and kind of probably inspired filmmakers because of the things that have been done in these movies. Not just the ones we're discussing today, but some of the other ones on this list. And so I, again, if you want to look this up, it's BFI's sight and sound list of best 21st century noir. I want to just bring up a couple of them before we move into talking about Drive. I really love the description that the webs- that BFI has for Sin City. I wrote here the UHF reference. You get to drink from the fire hose. <laughs> That's basically what they said about Sin City which was everything about noir turned up to an 11. That sounds accurate. So it's really interesting because we actually all, all three of us and some other friends recently rewatched Sin City. I remember loving that graph, that series of graphic novels. And I remember really loving the Rodriguez take on it, especially because he tried to stay so faithful to the aesthetic, but I don't think either Frank Miller or that film hold up as well as I thought they did. I would definitely agree that they don't particularly hold up. There's, I mean, there's definitely some aspects that to still admire about the movie, but overall it is watching it in 2022 was much harder than I had remembered. 
I will say, as I mentioned last week, Carla Gugino is a treasure and is the true. best part of this movie. That's true. I, I mean, I think the, the aesthetic holds up. I love the aesthetic yes. of this movie, but pretty much everything else about the characters and plot no longer seems as cool as it did when I was a teenager. Speaking of aesthetic, next year, Tessa is definitely going to watch Collateral because I'm going to make her. <laughs> uh, th- so, of course, Collateral is uh, Michael Mann and is, you know, uh, it is, it's, it's like one step away from Miami Vice. It is definitely that, again, another vibe. Uh, BFI talks about the electronic of the night. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Just say neon and be done with it. Uh, I I think this is a I I think it's another very good example of a noir vibe carried over to a different movie. I know you like it, Jack. Am I right? Yep. That was actually I think that might have been my first Michael Mann movie if I ever fully saw. I'd seen pieces of The Insider before I saw that, but I'm pretty sure that was my first one, and it's definitely stuck with me. Love the music. Love the two main performances. There's one needle drop, but I, when I hear that song, I instantly think of the scene from the movie. Is that the Audio Slave song, or is that a different one? Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, it's the Audio Slave drop. That is that is a great use of that song. I I'm just in my head. I'm like, I think the Insider came out the same year as Aaron Brockovich. Anyway, that's not important to this conversation at all. We've all seen Memento. Uh, which is as far uh, as we remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I only seem to remember the end. It's really hard to think back from that. <laughs> We're gonna have to start tattooing to your body. No, please don't. As I said when we were talking about the movies from the '40s, the sense of sinking, of losing something, is, I think, maybe that. If you take away the aesthetic. The, the loss of self, I think, is probably the thing that's most integral to noir. That's my claim, and I'm sticking to it. I mean, Memento would be a perfect movie for that. I mean, it's oh, yeah. about how our memories compose who we are. This is not the last time I'll bring up our buddy Chris Nolan in this episode. Me either, actually. Yeah. Um, so just really quickly, a couple of the other films that are on the list. You have David Lynch again. With Mulholland Drive, you know him. Him being the the king of the the nightmare. Is it a nightmare? Is it a dream? Is it both? You have you have Cronenberg checking in with uh, Aragorn in a history of violence. The lots of guns approach to noir. One last one to mention that they have on the list is the Black Dahlia, which is De Palma doing old school. Somebody we've already talked about in the sense of noir. Drive and Brick are both on this list. So let's talk about Drive, Tessa. Can we talk about Widows first? No. I would just like to mention, I would just It was a great movie. We saw it. Yeah. Yeah. I would just like to shout out Widows because last week I talked about The Devil in the Blue Dress. And I think that Widows in a lot of ways is doing some very similar inversions when it comes to race in noir. Won't say more than that. If you haven't seen it, do yourself the favor and watch it. It's quite good. It might be my favorite Viola Davis film. It was, it was good. It was a. It was fun. Yeah, it's a fun film. 
But yes, Drive. Let's talk about Drive. Tessa, is this film better than The Neon Demon? And follow up, was The Neon Demon the most disappointing monkey you've discussed on this very (laughs) podcast? I'm afraid to answer your second question because I feel like the outcry on our monkey Discord server was so intense when I expressed my disdain for the neon demon. But yes, I yes to both questions. I do believe that this film is much better than the neon demon. And if there is another monkey that was more disappointing than the neon demon, it is not coming to mind right now, considering how much I wanted to love that movie. So yeah, 100% final answer for both questions. I will give a point to the Neon Demon that might help you like it slightly is that it's a Keanu movie. Rarely does Keanu have bad movies. So <laughs> that feels like a Socrates is a man. If he, doesn't Socrates... Have a big, <laughs> he doesn't have a big role, but he does have a role. So I will take a Keanu movie over most. There's a lot of people in that film that I really like. And I think that's part of why I thought I would like it more than I did. Is Refn the current champion of bisexual lighting in film? I think he is, uh, because okay. this film also shares a lot in common with Neon Demon as far as its aesthetic. Neon Demon definitely dials up that aesthetic quite a bit more than this film does. But I would say that Drive feels like noir meets Vaporwave, both in the lighting and in the soundtrack itself. So you get a lot of that like almost churches style pop in this. And you get a lot of that like bisexual lighting, a lot of dark cityscapes with the with the different lights, you know, reflecting off of windshields or so on, because there's so many car shots in this film. But basically, Drive is a 2011 film directed, as said before, by Nicholas Winding Refn. The screenplay was written by Haseen Amini, and it was based on James Salas's 2005 novel of the same name, which honestly, I also think is another point in this film's favor. I think that might be one of the reasons I like it a lot, because I went in with very, I tried to go in with no expectations in this movie, but it is a noir novel that it's based on. So it feels like it still has those roots in that literary tradition of noir that we've talked about so much on this series. But the basic plot is is that Ryan Gosling stars as an unnamed man. This person is never named. He's in the credits as the driver who stunt drives by day and drives getaway cars by night. He befriends his neighbor and her son only for her husband to get him embroiled in a heist gone bad. To me, this film feels a lot more straight up noir. And again, it might be because it's based on a novel, but it also feels like you know, you have this domestic situation that, you know, the driver is sort of getting embroiled in, you know, despite the fact that he knows he shouldn't be embroiled in it. You know, there's some emotional, if not physical, infidelity going on in this marriage, which is clearly, you know, on the rocks. There's all those California cityscapes, both of the city, and you get that driving by the coast scene, which I have also mentioned, I think is very important to noir. I think a lot of noir is driving on the California coast with tense music in the background. You definitely get that in this film. But it also felt a lot like like a vaporwave film, like something that was trying aesthetically to look more like that style. And it also felt a little bit like 
a car film like Baby Driver or Fast and Furious. Maybe not like Fast and Furious except I, for the I car. I really thought this guy's name was Baby. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, it really was. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like that, especially at the beginning um, when it's like obvious that he's like the best getaway driver there is in the city. That, to me, felt a lot like Baby Driver, even though obviously that film comes later. Well, as someone who made this soundtrack their entire persona for a good year, <laughs> that should tell you something. I even listened to the original sa- So the fun fact about the soundtrack is that there was another person who was supposed to do the score, but then they changed it last minute. The guy who did the score, some of his songs are featured in the movie, but the score was not. And he eventually released the score under the name Themes for an Imaginary Film that you can find online. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, I really like this movie. I can tell you, I remember where I saw it. Not the, I can almost tell you the exact day I saw it. It's also funny that you mentioned that like some of the music sounded like churches because they did a re-record, like a like a special broadcast in the UK, and some bands contributed new music to like be the music for the movie on the broadcast. So like music is definitely a key component of this movie, and it sucked me in. I thought Ryan Gosling was great in this movie. Uh, Carey Mulligan also. I had probably seen him in other projects before, but this was the first movie where I was like, who is this about Oscar Isaac? And definitely, that, it was like the first time he was really on my radar. And I've never been more scared of the sweaty man from broadcast news in my life. <laughs> Albert Brooks. I, I feel like he was always that scary. We just didn't know. Like, Marlon will straight up kill you if he cannot find his son. Yep, that is true. Actually, just because the music is so important to this film, and you've listened to the soundtrack so many times, who are some of the artists who are on this soundtrack? Like, I was planning on actually tracking down some of these songs, but I didn't have time. So the guy who made the original score, his name is John, or his musician name is Johnny Jewell, and he does uh, his song that comes out in this, that is featured in this movie, is the under your spell and then he also had a another piece called tick of the clock but it's just a lot of like synthy bands that i've like really got into and then the guy did the final score his name is cliff martinez and he's actually done he does a lot of like sodenberg movies but also a fun fact is he was the first drummer for the red hot chili peppers it always comes back to California funk band, <laughs> Red Hot Chili Peppers. He, he's like a super prolific movie composer, but yeah, one, his early start was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's really funny. I love that. Yeah, the music is kind of excellent in this because this is this is a really interesting character, I think. And I wasn't sure what I thought of him at first because I've seen Ryan Gosling play this sort of character before. But I actually think it works really well in this film because he is so restrained and quiet and very stoic in some ways. Like he, you can't really always tell what he's thinking or feeling, but the music is what gives us that emotion behind what behind that face, right? It's it's what's telling us how he's feeling, what is going on in his brain. 
you know, there are some scenes with him and Carrie Mulligan's character, Irene, that honestly, if they hadn't had the music behind it, I wouldn't be able to tell if it was romantic or not. And so it it definitely feels like the movie is doing a lot of the emotional heavy lifting here, which, I mean, is true of a lot of noir films, I think. So this is probably just like compared to like the ones of like the 40s, where this is a one where there's like actual words to the music. Like yeah. Music, but it's creating the mood. Where like I feel like with having listened to the eighties and thinking of like Blue Valentine, the music is definitely a component, but I feel like in this movie at least, the music is almost one of the characters of the movie. Yeah, I definitely think that and actually to go back to your point earlier, Sam, and I'm curious, I haven't actually talked to you about this yet. I actually think that the biggest remix of this movie is the that loss of self. Because I think that this character at the beginning of the movie has lost his self. Like, he's very lonely. He doesn't really have a lot of point to his life except for just going and driving. And he drives during the day. He drives at night. You know, he goes back to his empty apartment. Like, there's not a lot going on in his life. I actually think he finds himself in this film. And that's through the character of Irene and Benicio, her son. So it's kind of a reversal of that. Instead of losing yourself and sinking, it's more of a rising. I have so many things I want to say. I've been listening to you guys talk, and I've actually made a list. Okay, let's hear them. <laughs> I don't want to forget anything. Let's hear them. Okay. Uh, in no particular order, Albert Brooks is in a movie with Meryl Streep called Defending Your Life. It could not be more oppositionally opposed. That was redundant. To his role in this movie. <laughs> it's it's a very odd little movie. Okay, so Cliff Martinez is actually not the first Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer. I know this because the first drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and who was uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with them is Jack Irons, who quit. Cliff Martinez came in for a few years, left. Jack Irons came back had to quit because he has some big like carpal tunnel issue, but he is the one who hooked up Eddie Vedder with Pearl Jam. So like, I, I just, Jack Irons got to say, but that, but I think it's really interesting that, you know, and, and Jack Irons became uh Pearl Jam's drummer for a few years till the, till the wrist issues came up again. But it's really interesting that so much has come out of Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, Anthony Kiedis has acted, Flea has acted, You've got what I said about Jack Irons. You, Jack, you have what you said about Cliff Martinez. Chad Smith looks just like Will Ferrell. They all have their things. <laughs> and that is my extended take on California funk rock band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm going back and forth on whether I think that Ryan Gosling is miscast in this film. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I don't care much for Ryan Gosling. I think, and I will say this, I think he is the perfect person for Greta Gerwig to have cast as Ken. Yes. Because that's who Ryan Gosling is to me. He's nothing. Like there's a great scene toward the end of the movie where his job is to look completely blank face and my friends, he nails it. But then again, and why would you think he's miscast in this movie? Then, Well, see, that's it. You know, when, when Tessa, when you were talking about, the way, the way that you describe the character pretty much said he was perfect for this role for exactly the reasons I said. So maybe he wasn't miscast. I also don't like Carrie Mulligan in this film. 
Really? No. Why not? Well, to bring up Baby Driver again, I think Lily James does a much better job of this kind of character. See, I was going to say, I think that what Carrie Mulligan is doing here is a reversal of the femme fatale. Mm -hmm. She is a femme fatale because she literally leads him to his death, right? Through his embroilment in her family. But she's also the girl next door. She doesn't have the Barbara Stanwyck, Catherine Trammell evil. But I don't think that the character that you describe right there is the character who makes the choices in this movie. Okay. I I just don't think that if you map that particular personality onto abuse, I don't know that you get what happens in this movie. That's just me. Oscar Isaac perfectly cast though. Be clear. <laughs> Willie James and Baby Driver is kind of like the manic pixie dream girl version of this. Yes. Character. Yes. Yeah, I think so For too. Sure. What did you think about the movie though? Sam, we haven't actually gotten I your take think on about it. the movie. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was pretty good. I was expecting to not like it because it really had two strikes against it going in. Yeah. Right. Because I don't like Gosling. And well, we saw the Neon Demon. We both watched that movie. We shared that experience. And I <laughs> wish we hadn't. So much of oh, it is about cars. I know what BG stands for. It stands for Blake Griffin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You should have known that things were going to go south in this movie when Blake Griffin is invoked in the beginning because Blake Griffin, while he had the talent and the possibility to be great, never was. Are you trying to taunt me as a Clippers fan? I did not know until this very second that you were a Clippers fan, but I will say (laughs) when the radio came on and they started talking about the Staples Center, friend, I was not thinking about the Clippers. And 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 really, and really, if we're going to go on that route, I can. Here's what I would say. That opening scene doesn't work for me because that many people go to see the Clippers play? I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> let's see, 20... 2011. Probably at that time. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. At that time, it probably would have been to see whatever the visiting team is. Because that was right before Wop City. So it was definitely like, who, like... So let's see, 2011. So probably, probably the Miami Heat. That's who they're seeing. Okay, that makes sense. It's funny. It's funny. They don't have to go very far to see LeBron. LeBron was there at that point, right? In no, Miami. he was in Miami. No, that's, yeah. They were they were coming to see LeBron play because he was in Miami. And now they stay away to not see him play. I will be here all week <laughs> with NBA jokes. As a person who went to Clippers games in the 90s, like I got to see Michael Jordan for real cheap. So yeah. I, I can figure out this game. I understand. I understand. That was my goal when I moved to Charlotte. I'm like, I'm going to see Kobe play. It was like a reverse what you just said. That's what we're still doing. <laughs> right? Anyway. So to actually bring this back to the point, there is some really good stuff in this film. And one of the reasons that it works is it does do that highlighting of the city. As much as we find it super annoying when New York City is a character, I love it when LA is a character. I will also accept when San Francisco is a character, although I don't want to ever go there again. I think this film does a really good job 
of having this particular character find his meaning in life, which is taking care of Irene and Benicio. You'll notice that when he offers to to run away with them, it's to take care of them, which I think is a very interesting way of putting that. But it also has that tragedy of him realizing that he can't actually have the thing that gives him meaning. So it's like he he has that rise and then that he has that fall. It's like I said, uh, if if side one of Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine that is pretty much the entire thesis of film noir. And and the song on that side, at the end of that side, is something I can never have. Right? Yeah. I mean, the thing that sticks out to me is that scene in the elevator where he knows that the person, the man standing next to them has a gun and that he's there to to kill him. And so he kisses Irene in this very romantic, like slow motion, beautiful music. The score is rising moment. And then he proceeds to beat this man to death in a very like ultra violent kind of way. And you can just see the horror on her face as she's like stumbling backwards out of the elevator. To me, that was the moment when he realized that he couldn't actually have her, that like the way that his life was set up was not something that she could be a part of, even if they both actually wanted to be together. And if you want to know what that song goes away and it goes to the score, that piece of score is called Skull Crushing. Oh, God. (laughs) Other titles on the score include Kick Your Teeth, They Broke His Pelvis, and right before They Broke His Pelvis is He Had a Good Time. (laughs) Those are some music facts. It's a pelvis breaking good time. Uh, or just the ultra violence. I mean, because as restrained as this character is, he does get very violent in moments when he thinks he's protecting them. A lot of Urban Outfitters shoppers find that scene very romantic. <laughs> Why did... Uh, okay. I mean, overall, I, I, again, pleasantly surprised by how much I did like this movie. I I think my general complaint about noir in the last 20 years is it's a really hard thing to do to marry film noir with our present. And I think Ruffin does the best job of these three movies. And and that surprised me you know you you think about a genre that existed back when the code did so you know we talked about how uh was say basic instinct and body double how it was like oh well we're not the code anymore i will show you all the sex all of it you know we talked last week about how they kind of managed to you know, affect the same kind of prudishness, the same kind of morality as they did in the 40s by by making basic instinct. It, it comes out to have the same message. I don't think that, I think on the whole, people who set out to do that same kind of emulation of noir in the 21st century, I don't think they get it. I don't think they get it. But this film does. You know, to go back to the Clippers play-by-play, I mean, you can't get more of the exact moment than that. So I think more than anything else, I I just think the decisions that he made are pretty good. 
pretty, pretty good. good. Car pranks. This movie has them. Yeah, it does. What did we think about the car action sequences? Because I don't think he actually carries a gun at all, ever, in this film. Despite being very violent at times. Vehicular homicide. <laughs> Grand Theft Auto style. So, Tessa. So, we love playing auteur theory here on Mumble, even though oh, we God. recognize, as we talked about last week, it is one lens of many with which to view and interpret films. But if we're going to play it, does this film redeem Refn for the Neon Demon? And given that all of our friends think we're wrong, which we aren't, but given that they think we're all wrong and Drive was a positive experience, does it make you think that maybe we were wrong? No, I am never okay. going to watch that movie again. All right. I... I actually really liked this film a lot. I plan on watching it again, and I kind of wish Refn would make more films like this instead of trying to make comments about feminism the way I felt about <laughs> Neon Demon. I'd be interested to know what you think of the movie he made in between yeah. this and the Neon Demon. Only God forgives. I've seen a lot about that one, and it's also Gosling, right? Yep. And the same person doing the score, What's It Bisexual Lighting. Yes. It is... If I remember correctly, some murky racial stuff. Oh, yikes. Yeah. I think I, honestly, I kind of think I had confused those two films in my mind for a while, Drive (laughs) and uh, Only God Forgives. Only God Forgives. Because Only God Forgives is a great title. I'm just going to put that out there right now. This film made me more curious to watch other films by him. So I probably will be checking out Only God Forgives. But it did not redeem Neon Demon for me. (laughs) But I do recommend it. This was my favorite of the three films, for sure. All right. So let's go ahead and move on then to our second film, Sidney Lumet's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. And if you're thinking, gosh, I don't know who Sidney Lumet is. Well, the same guy who directed this movie directed 12 Angry Men. Which is a classic. I mean... It doesn't get more classic than that. Yeah, I... Uh, Dog Day Afternoon and Network are pretty classics. Serpico. Yeah, he had a real string there. Yeah. Network. Uh, So this one comes out in 2007, which was an extremely good movie year, as we have discussed. This is actually Sidney Lumet's final film. It stars Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ethan Hawke, Marissa Tomei, Albert Finney, and Aunt May, two Aunt May movie in this movie. Wow! Oh, I did not make yeah, that connection. Got to May and, and Rosemary Harris. So and Aunt May. Off. That's actually the real reason I chose this movie. <laughs> that's it. Yep. I wanted to do a multiverse movie, and so this movie tells the story of two brothers, Ethan Hawke and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who are both going through some shit, and they decide that. They need money for various reasons, and so they're going to rob their parents' jewelry store, and as you can expect, it doesn't go to plan. One thing I really like about this movie is it's not told in chronological order, so it's presented like you see one, you follow one characters through 
a stretch of like a couple days leading up to the robbery attempts and then after and then it jumps back to a different character and you get more context to why they're acting in certain ways i thought that was kind of a unique spin on the noir uh wave storytelling like we talked about memento this isn't exactly the same because that's following one character dealing with their storyline being told in a different way but this is like three timelines in different orders like i did like the chronological stuff i thought that was really interesting i've never really seen a film that tells a story in a non-linear way like this the idea of like when somebody's remembering something, you go back and see it kind of, you even see full scenes from like a different perspective as well. So like you'll get half a conversation in one character's memory and then the rest of that conversation in another character's memory. I thought that was really nice. I liked the, there's a big twist in the middle of the film uh, where you realize that the person that got shot at the beginning of the film is actually their mother, which is horrifying in a lot of ways. And I thought that was really nicely handled. I have to say, though, despite the fact that I love Ethan Hawke and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I think they're both fantastic, fantastic actors, I didn't really care about either one of these characters. Like, And I know that they're supposed to be extremely flawed, <laughs> They're not supposed to have any really redeeming qualities to them. But the problem with that is, is that when you create a character with no redeeming qualities, there has to be something, there has to be some kind of stakes or there has to be something that like gets you invested in them and their storyline. I think honestly, the thing that would have made this a lot better for me is if we had seen more of this family together before the beginning of the film. Um, and not necessarily the mother because that would have ruined the twist, but like, you know, like if we'd seen like the brothers together, you know, like it just seemed like we went, we were thrust straight into this storyline and we didn't really understand the relationships between these two people. We don't really understand why F- Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is the way he is until like two thirds of the way through the movie. And there's a really wonderful scene with him in the car, you know, talking about his father. But the problem is that that scene almost comes too late because we don't understand that about him at the beginning. It's just, I don't know. For me, I wanted there to be more investment in the characters from the very beginning. This movie seemed more interested in the mechanic of the nonlinear storytelling than it did in character development. You know, when you described the same scene happening from multiple points of view, right? It it made me think of, at first, like, you just described Rashomon, right? And then I was like, no... It's not exactly like that. It's it's got some flavor of of that film and I was like, "Wait a minute. I literally just wrote in a thing about film noir that one of the movies that I was writing about had exactly that. It was kind of like Rashomon, but it wasn't really Laura." Well, Laura kind of does that. Yeah. This is this is that again. Yeah, it's just more tightly structured in its well memory. Yeah, it it doesn't have. Uh, I said, uh, you know, the fact that the 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 tagline of Twin Peaks is 
who killed Laura Palmer and and the tagline of Laura could be who killed Laura Hunt. You know, so that's what Laura has that that uh, before the devil knows you're dead doesn't. It also has that kind of proto Lynchian element, right? Uh, and and this doesn't. This is very tightly structured, as you said, which makes sense. You know, you think about Sidney Lumet, who they filmed productions that he did of like the Iceman cometh. Uh, I want to say long day's journey into the night as well. Like this is this is a stage director who has who made a very successful transition to film. And so I I'm not saying that people who direct plays tend to be a little bit more you know like is the film I'm shooting something I could do on stage? If no, I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not saying that. But Often, you know, you can see a similar thing when when Denzel Washington directed Fences. That looked like a stage play. You know, a lot of times when you see a stage play adapted for screen, you can tell. And then sometimes when you have uh, stage folks come over to film and direct it, looks like it could be on the stage, too. That's not what I'm saying. It's it's just a it's it's a little bit more grounded. In in then obviously everything's more grounded than Lynch, but I mean definitely more grounded. Than <laughs> Lynch, not a director I would call grounded in no. any sort of way. Have you seen his hair? Like it's like cloudy. Like even <laughs> his head. I mean, it looks like he's got a cloud on the top of his head. I have to say the other thing too is that the character I was most invested in did not have a flashback, and that was Marissa Tomei's <laughs> character. I kept wanting her to have one. Like I kept waiting for it to happen. Tell, wait, wait, wait. You have to tell Jack what you wanted, what you really wanted to oh, find out. So the other thing, too, that I i mean, I knew Limit wasn't going to do this, but it would have been amazing if he did, was you find out pretty early on in the film, Marissa Tomei's character is married to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, but she's sleeping with his brother, who's played by Ethan Hawke. I really wanted to find out by the end that she was actually dating all three siblings and that she was also sleeping with the sister because I thought that would be a really funny joke. But yeah, I just I kept waiting for her to to have a like to be part of it or to see more of her. My movie fact for this one is she had actually a very crucial role in helping Philip Seymour Hoffman through his most difficult scene of the movie. Can you guess what scene it was? The sex scene. Yes. He apparently was struggling with the idea of being nude on camera. So apparently she jumped on the bed got her hands and knee and swapped her own ass and said, come on, Philly, let's go. <laughs> and, that and when Marissa him, Tomei says that, you answer. Yep, it loosened him up to feel comfortable. So. Oh, that that's wonderful. I like that story. I feel like a lot of noirs that I've seen, pretty much all the characters, like Double Indemnity, you're not really supposed to really like any of those main characters. And I feel like that in this movie... Minus like the parents, because like we don't get to spend as much time with the parents. You're generally like not supposed to like any of the next generation down of the ones we really get to know, since we don't really get to know the sister all that much. But like Marissa Tomei, obviously, is like cheating on her husband. Um, Ethan Hawke's ex-wife is we're not painted particularly well, so I think Holly from the, the office is that we're not. Yep. 
we're like supposed to not like these characters except for the dad of the since we don't really get to know the mom that much and i feel like that's kind of fits a lot of the more classic noir movies of where they're like you're rooting for them because they're the or you're following them because they're the leads but doesn't mean they're like who they are as people are good people yeah and that's not what i'm trying to say at all like i i think bringing up double indemnity is actually a really good point here because like you said, none of those characters have any real redeeming qualities and yet they're so watchable. You're able to like invest in what they're doing on screen. I just didn't feel that same sense of investment when I was watching this film because I felt like. I think that's also like a mid aughts post nine eleven vibe to this movie is that just we're allowing people to be shaggier and like maybe a little more grotesque and just have to accept that there's just people who are just look like or normal people but they're just not good people i guess that was just the main thing for me was that i didn't i didn't really invest in that particular storyline but i did find the mechanics very interesting i also liked the idea that most of this happens in the daytime which is very interesting for yes. noir. I mean, I don't think, are there any real night scenes in this? Maybe a, a couple in the bar, but other than that, it's mostly. Yeah. I was going to say like, just probably the bar scenes, but you get like some seedier places downtown and you know, that, that all felt very noir to me. What happened to Ethan Hawke's character at the end? That's right. We don't know. He, he yep. He just runs away. We'll never know. That's it. He's, he's still running actually. I actually was very invested in both Chris and her brother. Like, I really liked that idea of her brother shaking Ethan Hawke down. That whole scene is very funny in the booth where he's, like, shaking him down. And Ethan Hawke is trying so hard to, like... Like, basically, if Ethan Hawke had rolled over and showed his belly, like, on that table, it would have been, like, just a step further than what he was doing. But, like, the idea that her brother sees this as... Like, well, someone's got to pay her bills. Like, you you took out her economic stability. So, like, you're her economic stability now. I thought that was all really great. And I really actually wanted to see more of those characters, too. I feel like I was just invested in the minor characters. Like, I wanted to know more about all of them than I did about the main characters. Michael Shannon is one hell of a performer. So that's true. Can't blame you for that. Well, I think we had conflicting views on this. But, Jack, where do you rank this now that you've watched it? Um, of these three, I would say number two, I think, behind Drive. Okay. Oh. All right. So we actually put them in order of how good you think they are. Surprise. I think I would probably would have had it number three before we watched Brick. Before we talk about Brick, a movie that I have moved out of the did not finish column <laughs> into the into another column. Before we get into that. I have three questions. I feel like I need a segment called I Need Answers. (laughs) I demand answers. So uh, I called this segment, How Does One Go About Making a Good Film Noir Anymore? I think that's, as I said at the top, that's really kind of my theme coming into this episode. They don't make them like they used to. So... What do you want to see less of from directors attempting noir, Tessa? 
I feel like directors now keep trying to be really cool about it. Like they keep trying to like create these action films that have these noir flavors. And we know that that can go well, but it just seems kind of anathema to try to be like super slick about noir. Noir is inherently very messy. And I think that people need to like embrace that when they're trying to make a noir film, but that's just not usually the way that we make films anymore. Definitely trying to, I feel like you can make nods to classic noir without having to be over the top and like kind of in your face about it. Like I feel like Blade Runner is almost, you could be dropped in the forties noir, but I don't feel like if you don't know anything about noir, you're just watching a fun sci-fi movie. And like, I feel like it's a movie where if you know the genre, it enhances the movie, but it doesn't take away from the movie. And so I think that's what I want more of is, if you're going to make a noir movie, like you can make not like make it for both people who are very familiar with the tropes of the forties, but make it stand on its own. Now, Jack, what do you want to see more of in terms of bringing the noir to movies today? Harrison Ford voiceover. <laughs> Correct answer. One where he doesn't sound bored, hopefully. No, that's that's his happy place. That's his Tessa. happy place. <laughs> I'm actually going to take that voiceover from that movie and just put it on top of random movies, <laughs> random scenes from random movies, that, and they'll never see it coming. That's well, actually, I mean, that's how they're going to solve the Indiana Jones Five problem, or the Thunderbolts movie he's going to be in. I forgot he was going to be in that movie. What if they were the same movie? This is reminding me of how after Prey came out, there was all this talk of like how we should just make everything into a surprise Predator movie, like Barbie versus Predator. Like <laughs> Surprise Harrison Ford voiceover. Surprise Harrison Ford voiceover. I like it. I like it. What else do you want to bring? I mean, I always enjoy a good femme fatale. Uh, so if they can do that without completely in your face about it though sometimes i mean we're not talking we didn't talk about it today because it's a 90s one but i like confidentials femme fatale is a very good one but she's also playing a femme fatale so you are talking about vicky vale herself kim kim basinger some people know her as kim basinger that was a that was a 1997 movie i know her as christian gray's mother if I oh, no. know the internet somewhat. Oh, no. <laughs> I actually don't know her. So that's, I just... <laughs> it is oh, kind no. of funny that she's in that movie. Oh, boy. Yeah, Michael Keaton and Kim Basinger. People need paychecks. You know, if they could make more <laughs> queer... Like, they need them that badly? <laughs> Do they? <laughs> you know, if they could make more queer femme fatales, like in Bound, to bring up another 90s noir film, that'd be cool. I'd watch that. I feel like there's definitely a good audience for that. I, I want to see more just general deconstruction, I think, of noir in terms of like the characters. Like you said, like someone paying homage, someone playing homage to those 40s tropes, those noir tropes, while casting maybe different people in the roles than we've seen before, because so much of noir is about white dudes like it, it just is like that's part of 
like the alienation and the and the losing yourself and all of that stuff it, a lot of times it's centered not always but a lot of times it is centered around like a male central character and that's honestly why I loved the devil in the blue dress so much is because it it was trying to say something about that character it's why I lo- also love Veronica Mars so much it's still very has a lot of very noir flavors to that show so I would love to see more films that do noir while casting people who maybe don't look like the people in the forties and telling stories that maybe don't exactly follow those themes in regards to white people, if that makes sense, because there's just so much room in this genre to tell other stories. There's so much alienation in the world that like you could tell stories about almost anyone besides white men and get, get some better feelings out of it. I think better vibes. Why didn't I? I should have included the. I should have done the Veronica Mars movie as my movie of the week. Ooh. Which wait wait which one? Oh no, the, there's, it, only there's only one. one. There's only I, one. I think of the revival series. Yeah. Is a, <laughs> oh boy. Um. Okay. So. I know you've got a list, Tessa. Directors and actors you want to see doing noir. Take it away. So we're going to talk about Ryan Johnson here in a minute. I actually would love to see him return to noir now that he has the Knives Out movies sort of under his belt, because I would love to see him take some of those same sensibilities into a more noir direction. Knives Out is definitely more of a whodunit type of situation, but I would like to see him actually come back to the genre that he started with and bring some of those ideas there. I honestly would love to see a Jordan Peele noir. I think that would be really interesting. It would obviously probably be more of a thriller horror hybrid, but he is very good at vibes in general. And I think that that would be a really cool remix for him. And then like, there's some obvious ones like the Safdie brothers. I haven't seen as many of their films, so they may have already started doing some noir, but what I've seen is more crime thriller based. So I would love to see them actually take that sensibility into more of a noir direction. Hey, cast Adam Sandler. Like, I I could see him doing noir. Like, that would be totally fine. But I also think Janelle Monet could do noir. I think Jessica Henwick could do noir. Florence Pugh can do anything, so she can do noir. That's Miss Flo. Miss Flo. I would own that. I would <laughs> never go by anything but Miss Flo. I think Christoph Waltz could do noir. I think Lupita Nyong'o could do wa- noir. And honestly, I would love to see Pedro Pascal take a take a swing at it too. I think he could also fit into that. He's already doing like a basically a space western. He could do a space noir. I'd be into it. I was going to say Matt Reeves, but I guess the Batman was kind of a noir. Yes, give us more um, of that, please. That was excellent. If he has his way, I think this trilogy of movies seems like it might be kind of that style any and anyone at that cast obviously i mean it'd be fun to see anna de armas playing the lead of a noir movie versus the femme fatale like she was in the other blade runner movie there's a good i guess it's a noir movie um one of the the Korea, big Korean movie this year by Park Chan Wook is kind of a noir, is a noir movie called Decision to Leave, um, which will be available later on streaming this year. And that's one of my favorite movies of the year. So 
definitely I'd recommend that when it's available. Yeah, that's the other thing is I think I would also really like to see I would like to actually start watching personally some more foreign films with noir elements. Uh, I you this episode hasn't come out yet though, Jack. But I mentioned last week, Fallen Angels by uh, Wong Kar Wai uh-huh. is definitely more of a noir than noir, yes. any of his other films. I think. And that one was supposed to be part of Chunking Express, or one story that was supposed to be Chunking part of Chunking Express, and then got they separated into its own movie. I think that was smart because I think it's a very different vibe than the rest of the stories. And I think it's because of those noir elements. I have, there's also an Argentine movie from the mid or late two thousands that I can recommend, but it's also called the secret in their eyes. And that's a good noir movie. You know, what isn't a good noir movie? Brick. I have a feeling this one's also going to be a slightly controversial, but Sam, why don't you introduce Brick to us? All right. Sam, I, would you say this hit like a bunch of bricks? It did. It <laughs> did. So I actually wrote in the notes, what is this movie? I demand answers. But I already did the demanding answers thing in the last segment. So we'll just move on past that. I tried to watch this movie several years ago, and I did not finish it. I had a difficult time getting through pop culture of any kind at that point. And man, as soon as I realized that this movie by Ryan Johnson is high school, it's like noir in high school. I was like, I've seen Veronica Mars. I know what that is. This is like a weird mashup that doesn't make any sense. It is Ryan Johnson's directorial debut. He is trying to channel Dashiell Hammett. And, you know, you give you give these directors a lot of slack because it is their first movie. And, you know, Ryan Johnson has gone on to make some really good movies. I, I like Looper as a time travel movie and, uh, you know, his other stuff as well. But I got to say, having seen Paul Thomas Anderson's Heart Eight and Christopher Nolan's Following... Those are both better movies than Brick. And that's that's the company I would put Ryan Johnson in. Quite the hot take. Why is it? A, I don't know. What what about that is hot? The fo- same following is better than this. Oh, man. It has a point of view that I, I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. To not creep on people? Yeah. I would say this movie also has that point of view. That's true. Okay. So, I'll tell you. This this movie, Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays a would-be Sam Spade searching for the blandest MacGuffin ever, a brick. A brick of what? Don't know, except I do eventually. He's trying to find out what happened to his ex-girlfriend, Claire from Lost. <laughs> because Lindelof and Q sure aren't going to tell us what happened to her. That's my my little lost joke for the day here's another one here's a movie idea an entire film that is one elaborate troll of jj abrams we'll call it somewhat decent eight (laughs) somebody out there is gonna get that joke because it's a good one unlike this movie which is not good what did you not like about all of it well give us some some details here i okay i 
So Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character's name is Brendan. Everything happens in this movie. It's like noir paint by numbers. The only thing that doesn't happen is somebody doesn't look at him and go, forget it, Brendan, it's high school. (laughs) Like he could have named him Brendan Giddies. I mean, come on. Just commit to the bit already. I will say that the first time I saw this, which I was in college when I saw this, my first thought was, this is the Maltese Falcon, which wasn't a detrimental thing for me because I love the Maltese Falcon. The plot beats are very similar. You're absolutely right to compare Brendan to Sam Spade and to compare the brick to the Maltese Falcon. It's even the titular thing, right? So it, the titular thing. I think yeah. we should call it that instead of a MacGuffin. And the fact, and the fact that the is it Laura? Is it Laura? Is that her name? Uh, Do we have another Laura? Please God, no, it's not. No, it's Emily. Emily. No, 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 no. The other girl. The femme fatale. Yeah. Laura. Yeah, we have another it Laura. Is. Yeah, oh. his ex girlfriend was Emily, um, who I did not know who. Um, Emily D. Ravine was at the time. But yeah, the the femme fatale of this is actually also named Laura. She also has really big Bridget O'Shaughnessy vibes as well. She yeah. does remind me a lot of that character from the Maltese Falcon. The idea that she comes in and she seems like she's in trouble and she's like very sweet and all of that. But then she has that turn at the end where she becomes like, very monstrous right at the end where she's like whispering something in his ear and she's taunting him with the fact that it was his child and all Mm -hmm. of that this the 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 thing about this film at the end of the day and i want to know what you think about this jack it's not that these things don't happen in high school i'm not saying kids don't have drug deals that go wrong and they die from it i far be it for me to say that but what i am saying is the tonal dissonance is too much. This isn't a tribute to 1940s noir. You can't make a tribute to 1940s noir in a high school setting by imitating it. You can by adapting it, remixing it, Veronica Marsing it, if you will. But it's tonal dissonance for me. That's what it is. Jack, what did you think? I definitely remember seeing the trailer for this movie. Like, there's certain shots of the when I rewatched it today, and probably even the first time when I watched it, I could definitely remember a lot of the moments that were in the trailer that kind of interested me. The shot of the car driving past him and his hand feeling the breeze of it. Um, it's definitely. I would say if the three movies we watched, probably the one that is trying the hardest for the mood that it is doing. Right. And maybe not the, and maybe trying a little too hard. I mean, the move, the pro of this movie is, I think, Ryan Johnson, it, his direction is very, there's a lot of things directing wise I liked about the movie. I think the script is where things kind of struggled. Mm-hmm. In my review of the movie, there's at one point uh, Joseph Gordon Lovett is talking to someone and jokingly says, "I guess I'll see you at the parent uh, conference." And it was very hard at this movie, but I'm sure it was meant to be slightly a jokey line. But I feel like I laughed harder than it was 
than Ryan Johnson probably would have wanted me to. The directorial style, the the way the shots are framed, I am not the first person to say this by any means, but to me it was very clear this is Chinatown. Uh, as much as the story is lifted from Dashiell Hammett, visually, I think Chinatown is where Ryan Johnson... I, I you could If you told me that that uh, the seminal movie that he saw to make him want to make his first movie noir was Chinatown. I wouldn't be surprised. I know for a fact, because he's on the record about it, that Dashiell Hammett is the inspiration. But I'm willing to bet you from a filmic perspective that it's Chinatown. Tessa. Tessa. What have you to say about oh, this movie? I mean, <laughs> I think that I don't like it as much as the first time I saw it. And I think what annoys me is the dialogue for the most part. It's not really the plot or the shots because I think that those are all done very well. I think my problem with it is, is that I am kind of, I don't know. I, it's you, hard for me to say. Are you too old for this shit? No, it's just. So I, I was thinking about it earlier because I was like, but you like Boz Lerman when he does Shakespeare in, you know, California <laughs> and like everyone's still speaking, you know, in, in Shakespearean English and iambic pentameter. But <laughs> there's something about the way that these kids talk in this, especially Brendan, that doesn't it doesn't work. I mean, it's all straight out of the 40s, but it just doesn't it doesn't feel right for the setting and honestly it feels like it's dated even as you're listening to it because it is like it is trying to throw back to that like screwball comedy fast you know talking type of thing and I don't know it just it it didn't work for me as well this time as it did the time before I will say though like you Jack there were some moments that I laughed a lot in this and my favorite one and I do think Ryan Johnson wanted me to laugh at this was uh Luke Haas's Lucas Haas's character as the pin was one of the funniest characters in this like I do not understand like he's this t- guy in his 20s who still lives with his mom who is drug dealing to high school students and is trying to like be so cool like he has his his you know dark cape on and his office with his statues and a lamp in his van and you know he the scene on the beach with Brendan where he says have you read Tolkien's The Hobbit series is like one of the funniest lines. Like I could not stop laughing at this person. That worked for me. That character was straight out of noir. That was that was like a Peter Laurie uh, type of type of character or like a villain in in a noir film. That was very funny. You know, growing up, I've seen Joseph Gordon-Levitt in two very prominent roles as a high school student. His first big claim to fame is playing Tommy on Third Rock from the Sun. I mean, that's where people my age know him from. And, you know, beyond that, we see him as Cameron in 10 Things I Hate About You. He looked a lot like Heath Ledger in certain shots of this movie. Yeah, especially but, at the beginning. You know, but for somebody who's played a high school student so well for so long, nope, not this time. I didn't believe him. 
Sam, you're definitely showing your age because you clearly do not remember him as the star of Angels in the Outfield. Nope. <laughs> nope. I mean, I liked this character a lot. I just wish... I don't know. Like, there's also this thing where they're trying to make us think that he's like the hard-boiled Sam Spade of his high school, and yet there's no evidence that he is actually that character outside of this one very specific situation. Like, I don't know. It just didn't, it, it doesn't work for me the way that Veronica Mars works, but I still really enjoyed watching it. I think I still really enjoyed watching it way more than Sam did. So I, as I said before, I liked Looper. I haven't seen the brothers bloom, but I will say knives out is the ultimate crime film redemption for everything that he did wrong for brick. He did two, three, four, five things right in Knives Out. I, I love that movie. Second one's coming out soon. I guess yeah. it already is out for some people. Speaking of parents from Fifty Shades of Grey, he's the real, you, you got Don Johnson in Knives Out, who's the real life dad of Dakota. <laughs> I did yes. it. I can play yes. this game. <laughs> and related to your 80s podcast, because ex-partner or wife, was mentioned in your last episode. Nani Griffith. Yes. <laughs> it took me a second, but I got there. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I like how she went from, <laughs> I like how she went from Don Johnson to Antonio Banderas. There's only one uh, threesome that is equivalent. Can you figure out who it is? Mm-mm. We so going from Lenny Kravitz to Jason Momoa. Yes. Yep. That yep. is. Oh my god! You remember how they broke up for like two weeks last year? And then year? he was like, "No, I've changed my mind." <laughs> no. Oh no! Life is not Gotta what do I thought it was. Son Wolf. My he, son Wolf needs me. He went out there, <laughs> saw how modern dating is, and was like, "Nope, nope, I'm not going to nope. find anything better than her." Uh uh-uh. uh And and it's true. Yep. It's true. Fun fact. Um, all right. So, I mean, enough about Ryan Johnson. We'll get to the other little indie film he made soon. Jack, I hope you've enjoyed November. Always. I feel like I feel like it's been so short. I feel like it was only a couple weeks. I feel like we're really just in the middle of November <laughs> right now. What other noir movies have you been watching, Jack? This November. Manhunter. Nice. If you I would say that's a noir. We were going to, uh, when, we when Ryan was on the podcast, we were going to watch another William Peterson movie, but we were unable to locate to live and die in LA. I feel like that's got to be somewhere. Asphalt Jungle on my Marilyn Monroe watch. Mm-hmm. Deep Cover, which is a 90s one with Jeff Goldblum and Lawrence Fishburne. And then Basic Instinct. Right. Those are the ones I've done. And and most importantly, tell us about how you plan on raising your daughter to in to follow in your footsteps with November in the future. You're starting her young, I hear. Yes, there is the company Cinephile that makes a very fun card game. Anyone wants to play with me, I'm always free to play. <laughs> they have a child children's book right now called A is for a tour. And in December or January, they have one about the French New Wave and a new a book about baby's first noir. So she will learn all about noir through her baby book. 
And by the time that kid is five, she's going to be like one of our regular guests too. She's going to know so much. She's going to know more than that I am. That is the goals. <laughs> and for everyone else who's not a baby, we have done our best to educate you about noir. I enjoyed it. I think I think we've all enjoyed it. This was a very successful first noir member. I've already us. half planned out next year, so I think we're good. But enough about next year. Next week. We are closing out the regular season for Monkey Off My Backlog with Elise, who will join us in studio for a live Christmas episode, live recorded, recorded live, before we begin to celebrate the real reason for the season, the 11 days of Star Wars. You can see Sam getting more and more visibly excited every day. I feel like by the time we actually get to when we start recording this series, like she's just going to be like vibrating. She's so excited. All right. Until next week. In the meantime, Jack, where can people find you online? For the moment, you can still find me on Twitter at Jack Treats Life and also on Letterboxd at Jack Love Cinema. I feel like this... You can still find me on Twitter joke is pretty much our Dread Pirate Roberts bit at this point. (laughs) Yeah, it's a disclaimer we have to say every time now. Maybe you'll find us on Twitter. Maybe not. Who knows? Tessa, where can people find you online? You can find me for now on Twitter at the by Paradox. You can also find me on Letterboxd and Storygraph under the same name. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that online at Nanny's Book Club on Twitter and at Nanny Ogg's Book Club on Instagram. You can find me online on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. You can also find more from Tessa and myself, on moviejohn.com. That's moviejawn.com. What do you have coming out next, Sam? What I'm, have you had come out? What have I had come out? That's a good question. By now, you can probably go to moviejohn.com and see an article about how I started watching noir. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter for now at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. And if gmail.com goes down, we are all in real trouble. (laughs) Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.